morning. Good to be worshiping with you this morning, this uh, dark, gloomy, rainy day. Uh, but it definitely provides some um, other relief from this heat that we've been having. Uh, this morning, we're continuing in our Romans passage uh, of Romans chapter 14 to 15, going through all the implications of this gospel, the gospel that we receive by grace. So we're well into the second half of Romans, and we only have a couple of chapters left, so we're nearing the end. So if we continue on that thought of what the gospel does in our lives and how that gospel is exemplified in the relationships that we have, we start to see that once we start looking, okay, how do I know that this gospel really, really affected me, really is transforming me? We look at the relationships. We look at the way that our relationships are being transformed and formed, not only within the church, but to those who persecute us, our enemies. Remember, we overcome evil with good. The way that we submit to our authorities. And Paul continues in that line of thought in chapter 14, even into chapter 15. He continues to write about what our relationships look like, particularly within the church. Because within the church, we are to have a Christian unity. A unity that contains differences individually, but all together united in Christ. As we represent the body of Jesus. But now, you and I know that in conviction and in principle, we want to say yes and amen to that. Yes and amen to unity. Yes and amen. Yes, I do love my fellow brother and sister. And in a general way, yes, you and I will say we love people. Of course I love people the way that Christ loves me. Christ loves all his people and I likewise love people. But you and I know that although we say that in word, in actuality, when we spend time with people, when we live with them, with roommates and spouses and kids, it's a very different story. Where we can say, in principle, I love my brother and sister, but when we butt heads with them and we brush shoulders, it's very different. Um, uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky, he writes, I love mankind. But I am amazed at myself because the more I love mankind in general, the less I love people in particular, that is, individually as separate people. In my dreams, I'll go as far to the other side of the world for a person if necessary, but yet I am incapable of living in the same room with anyone for two days, and this I know from experience. As soon as someone is there close to me, this personality, his personality, oppresses my self-esteem and restricts my freedom. And he says, in 24 hours, I can hate the best of men simply because he takes too long eating his dinner. Another because he has a cold and he keeps blowing his nose. I become the enemy of people the moment they touch me. And I think all of us can relate to this. To this day, my wife, she hates it when I throw my clothes on the bed. And that created much strife even in our marriage. She hates it when I brush my teeth, not in the bathroom, but I walk around the living room. 
because she says that all of the white toothpaste bubbles will get everywhere, which I don't see. We know in principle and in mind and in thought, we love people. We want to love our brother. We want to love our sister. But in actuality, it's a very different story. So how can Christians have this unity in light of these difficulties and challenges when we actually spend a lot of time together, especially as renewal mainline? How are we able to do this? And the answer that Paul gives, it all depends how you view your Christian freedom. And that's going to be the theme of our passage this morning. How you view your freedom. We know that in the gospel that we are free from the slavery of sin. We are free from moralistic living to, to obtain favor with God. We are free to do what we're created to do, which is to worship and to love the Lord as his people. Romans 8, uh, chapter 8, verse 2, For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And so, now, what do we do with our freedom? And there's two headings for this morning. Number one, our freedom must be offered unto the Lord. Our freedom is to be offered unto the Lord. And number two, our freedom must be concerned with the fellow Christian. And the way that we can think about it, our freedom is going to be impacted not only vertically, the way that we live our lives to God, but also horizontally with our fellow Christians. And to end, I'm going to give one application. And the way that we understand this freedom that we have is going to be the key to how we can promote unity amongst God's people. So with that said, uh, let's ask the Lord for his help for these truths to really take heart, uh, hold in our hearts. Uh, Father, we do pray that we may humbly come before your word this morning. Lord, even as we enter this church, we in our own minds, we might think, I need to hear this or I need to know this. But Lord, we thank you for your sovereignty, for your control and your guidance. For you have sovereignly given us this passage because you believe and you know that it is what we need. So help us to see your word as your word for us and help our hearts to be open for your Holy Spirit so that we may not grieve him, but receive him in your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So number one, our freedom that is to be offered unto the Lord. So first, I want us to picture what the Roman church looked like during the time of Paul's writing. Most likely a small congregation, maybe our size, maybe even smaller. Perhaps meeting in someone's home without a building. Maybe in meeting two people's homes, perhaps. And that congregation was very diverse. It was a mixed group. There were Jews, diaspora, diaspora Jews who lived in Rome, who had a former way of living according to the Jewish customs, but now they became Christian. We have Gentiles and pagans. We have Roman citizens. We have Jews who are used to eating kosher foods not eating certain kinds of meat. 
we have Gentiles and Roman citizens who are free to eat anything that they wanted. So you can imagine what their Thanksgiving potluck luncheon was like and how hard it might have been to iron out all the details. Or what do you want to eat after service, salad works or Panera, right? Two options. So you can imagine all the things that they had to iron out. There were also people who became Christian even though one was a slave and the other was a master. So can you imagine, perhaps, what if that slave was spiritually more mature than his master? Perhaps he taught Sunday school class, but then the next day, going back into work. You can imagine just all the various details that this early church had to iron out. And so in that, Paul writes in verse 1, chapter 14, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. So he recognizes the diversity within the church. People from different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different ways of doing things, and the command that he gives us, for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. And now who is Paul referring to when he's writing the one who is weak in faith? And we saw a few verses after that, it's the one who eats only vegetables. And at first reading, it might seem confusing as if Paul is saying that if you're a vegetarian, you're a weaker Christian, and that's not what he's getting at here. Uh, what he's writing is a lot of these Jewish Christians, they grew up following Leviticus 11, Deuteronomy 14, where there is a very clear instruction of these ceremonial laws of what kinds of foods are considered clean and unclean. Amongst them was pigs, pork, so the Jewish people, they grew up never eating pork because it was considered unclean. Now, for those living in the Greco-Roman world, they loved bacon. They loved eating pork. They were free to eat any and all kinds of meat. But now, in light of Christ and what he has done in his coming, in his work and death and resurrection, we see that all the Old Testament ceremonial laws are now abrogated meaning that they are done away with. Because no longer do you have to participate in these rituals to be set apart as God's people, to be considered clean, to only eat clean foods. Because Christ has accomplished that perfect obedience. He is pure and blameless. And by virtue of us having faith in him, we are considered clean and pure and holy. And now that is what the Bible teaches. That is the Christian faith. But now still, some of these Jewish Christians and others, they had a hard time reflecting that belief. That they know in mind, they agree and they affirm, yes, I am free to eat anything that I want, but still, because of the way that they were brought up, it is still hard for them to eat certain kinds of foods. It was a stumbling block because it reminded them of how they were so cautious of eating this and not that, of how they saw themselves as superior people by eating certain kinds of food. So you can see how that it was a temptation for them to be exposed to all these kinds of food. So in their conscience... In their minds, they decide, I'm not going to eat these foods because I know that it could stumble me. I know that it can be a temptation for sin. So they made up in their minds to set that apart. 
Now, on the other hand, Paul writes to stronger Christians, the ones who are stronger in their faith, and probably it was the Roman uh, citizens who never grew up with those dietary restrictions. And they know, and they very much agree and confirm, I am free to eat anything that I want. And so to them, he writes that they are stronger in their faith. It wasn't only in what they ate. In verse 5, we see that one person, they consider certain days as better than another day, better to worship and to give honor to the Lord. And that reflects how in your past religion, you might have set aside certain days to worship, but now in the Christian faith, you start to worship on other days. And perhaps for those who grew up in a pagan or Roman background, they have certain holidays and traditions that they are so used to. So they rather worship God on those days. Paul even writes about drinking wine in verse 21. How we know that in Christian freedom and in moderation that we are free to drink and enjoy what God has created. But he also knows that there are many where being in the presence of wine will be too great of a temptation because of the hold that alcohol had in their lives. So we see there are these various, uh, various things that these Christians were ironing out. And there were differences. And each one of them, they made a decision on how they can honor the Lord. And so what is that unifying principle? Even though this Christian, he believes this is the way that he can best honor the Lord, and another Christian believes that this is the way that he can honor the Lord, what is that unifying principle? It is the motive and the intent behind each action. Because on the outside, two Christians can be doing completely different things, but in the inside, their hearts, their intent, their motive is to please and honor the Lord. For one Christian staying away from the meat that brought back all those strict external acts of Jewish living, staying away from that was the way that he could best honor God. For the Roman Gentile Christian, having and exercising his freedom in all eating all these things was the way that he could honor the Lord. And so what the common uh, bond is between those two, underneath it all, is this honest saying, saying, God, I'm doing this for you. And that's what unites the brothers and sisters in the Roman church. And it can be different from different people, and it can be even different in various stages of your life. I remember in one of my first retreats growing up, I was exposed to Jesus for the first time. And during this retreat, they placed a box in front of the sanctuary. And in that box, throughout the retreat, people, students, would throw away various idols that they had in their lives. And at first, I was kind of skeptical of what this box would contain. But by the end of the retreat, guess what was found in that box? There were cigarettes, lighters, there were alcohol, there were perfume and makeup that some of the people had to give up because they were so overly concerned with the way that they looked. And by the end of the retreat, this box was full and all the camp counselors were going, how did they even bring this here? We did all that we could to make sure, and they had their ways. And I remember as a young student, one thing that I saw there were CDs, music CDs of all these various kinds of music. And so in my mind, at that point, in my young spiritual faith, I thought to be holy, you only listen to Christian music. And so shortly after that, I did away with all of my secular 
music. And instead, I listen to Christian hip-hop, subpar Christian jazz. Did you even know that was out there? Christian rock, Christian punk. And so there was a period of my time, my life, when I would do away with secular music and say, God, I want to do this for you because I know how much music can have an influence in my mind, in my thoughts, and in my heart. So therefore, I want to do away with that and listen to only songs that contain biblical truths. And I believe, sincerely believe, and as we see in Romans 14, God honored that. Because my intent, my motive was to honor the Lord. Now, later on, entering college, I started to grow in my faith. I started to learn such things as we are to be uh, in this world, but not of this world. Started to learn about common grace. How God is not simply the God of subpar Christian hip-hop, but also the God of all things. He created all good things. And so even the way that non-Christians can create beautiful classical music reflects the beauty of God. And as I grew in that biblical understanding, I made a conscious decision. I am going to listen to any music that reflects God's beauty. I could listen to Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You without being stumbled anymore, even though we listen to it every single uh, mall that we go to during Christmas time, right? I had the freedom to do that. Now, on the outside, it probably looked very different, right? My iPod contained very, uh, different kinds of music. But at different stages of my life, God had convicted me with music, with how I could offer that up to the Lord. And so we see in that principle, on the outside, even within the church, there might be different things that you are convicted of, of how you can give this area of your life onto God. And that might look very different from the one next to you. But what the unifying principle is, who are you doing it for? Who are you thinking of? Who are you trying to honor? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. And we see that beautifully reflected in our church. Now the danger of this, to live according to the freedom of our conscience, is that we can take this freedom too far, right? Because we know that although one's conscience is an important guiding principle to dedicate all these things onto God, our conscience is prone to error. You and I know that the idea that is around us today is this idea that is prevalent, uh, that, that whatever truth is, whatever meaning is, you have to look inside of yourself, right? Who is that girl I see staring back, right back at me, Mulan? Look inside your heart to find truth and meaning, and that should guide your life. Disney's Pinocchio, as soon as he became a man, a boy, who was he given? Jiminy Cricket. And what did he serve as? His conscience, right? Do you remember the song? Give a little whistle and always let your conscience be your guide. But we know that Pinocchio messed up, right? He turned into a donkey. And that shows that your conscience cannot be this ultimate principle that you can follow every single moment of your life. Because you and I know that our conscience, they are pr it's prone to wander. It is important and it helps us, but we cannot trust that as this infallible way of living our Christian lives. 
we have to make sure that even our conscience is in line with what God clearly teaches and promotes or prohibits in Scripture. Because as verse 10 says, we will all stand before the judgment of God. In verse 12, we will give an account of ourselves to God, whether we submitted our conscience and our lives onto the truth of God. You know, I wonder how our lives would look like if we still lived under the laws and restrictions of the Old Testament. These dietary laws, performing uh, ritual sacrifices of unblemished animals, celebrating on certain days and feasts, all so that we can be set apart as God's holy people. And now in the New Testament, Christ sets us free from all of that. But that's not the end. Because the question now is, what are you going to do with your freedom? How are you going to dedicate your lives on to the Lord? Are you going to utilize your freedom in Christ for yourself? Or are you going to lift them up onto the Lord? How are we to utilize our freedom? And this can show in many ways. One person, he might be convicted to exercise and to stop eating junk food because he knows that his body is a temple of the Lord and that he is to care for it. He believes in the bodily resurrection and he might be convicted to have a healthier lifestyle. At the same time, another person can be convicted to exercise less and to not be so concerned with what he eats because he knows that his self-image can be an idol. That he's overly concerned with the way he looks. One person can be convicted to spend his Sunday afternoons with his children because he knows that he is called to be with them, to be present in their lives, to guide them and love them. At the same time, another father can be convicted to actually spend time away from his children because he spends too much time and he needs to spend time in the Word and in prayer. And so you can have two Christians looking very differently on a Sunday afternoon. But the unifying principle and the challenge for us is whatever freedom you have, whatever afternoon you have, whatever time, whatever money, whatever energy and resources do you have, are they free for you to use for your own good or are you lifting them up to the Lord? Paul writes, everyone dies. But what's important is what's the purpose of dying? What are you dying for? It says everyone lives, but the important thing is, what is the purpose of your living? Because no one will know on the outside. Probably some people thought I genuinely loved Christian hip-hop music. No one will know, but God will. Because you will stand before him in judgment, and he will look at your heart to see, did you do this for me or for your own self? That's the conscience that we live. It might be different, but let us all lift them up onto the Lord. Second point, our freedom not only is vertical with God, it is also concerned with our fellow brother and sisters in our church. Paul, he summarizes what he says in 1422, verse 22. He says, the faith that you have, keep it between yourself and God. He says, maintain your conscience in front of God. And now Paul knows that it cannot just simply be a vertical dimension to it. Because if that was the case, 
You come to church on a Sunday morning, everyone will be doing different things, right? One person will be worshiping in this way, another person will be worshiping in that way, and there will be chaos, and they will not look united. How will the world see how Christians and the church is united? So Paul, he also focuses on the horizontal dimensions of it. And he starts to talk about what are these essentials, these things that bind us together, versus what are the non-essentials. And it is important for you and I to know what these essentials and non-essentials are so that we can see what truly should bind us together, God's truth, God's word. You know, a while ago I gave a dating seminar to uh, younger Christian uh, students. And we were talking about how uh, people get together and break up over a variety of reasons. And for many couples, if they do break up, it is for legitimate reasons, different callings for their lives, different value systems. But at the same time, there are many couples who broke up for non-essential reasons. Some of the things that I found online was one former boyfriend said that he broke up with his girlfriend because she wore the same deodorant as his mother. And he simply could not live with that. We saw that one girl, she broke up with her boyfriend because her boyfriend held his fork overhanded like a shovel. And she said, I cannot see that every day. We see another couple, they broke up because the boyfriend, he never cleared the leftover time on the microwave. I actually do that. Always 12 seconds left or 14. And then one girl, she broke up with her boyfriend because he didn't believe in the moon landing. And she says, I cannot live someone who refuses to believe that we landed on the moon. And as funny and ridiculous as some of these things are, I think they actually capture what could happen if we do not regard the horizontal aspect of Christian unity. Because as funny as these things are, you and I know, and we've experienced just how the Christian body has broken up over some of these non-essential matters. Churches splitting because they're arguing over the color of the carpet in their sanctuary. Over the time of worship that they should have. Over the kind of praise music that they should offer on Sunday service and so forth. And we know how much of a reality that this exists where the non-essentials start to cloud over these essential truths of the gospel. So in light of these difficulties, in light of how we can tend to have these non-essentials be more important than they are, what's the answer? And Paul writes, and this is where we can peek ahead in chapter 15, verse 1. He says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. You see, Paul writes that we are going to individually stand before God and it is to our conscience that's going to be examined by him. And we are going to offer all these things unto the Lord, whether they drink, eat, or whatever they do. But it's also going to involve the way that we promote the well-being of our brother and sister next to us. See, what was happening in the Roman church, as we established, there were those who are weak in faith those who are strong in faith over dietary restrictions. And you would assume that they would go to all these different places to have their meals. But you know what you saw? Them coming to the same table, eating the same foods. Why? 
Because in that situation, the one who felt free to eat whatever he wanted, he chose to eat vegetables and salad. Perhaps this can help you remember throughout the week. Are you willing to eat salad for the sake of your brother and sister? And if you can say yes to that, God's grace is very evident in your life. And that's what was being displayed in the Roman church. Even though he had the freedom to exercise his rights in eating whatever he wanted, because Christ came, he abrogated those dietary laws, yet he chose in his freedom so that he could share table fellowship with his weaker brother. And that's what was being exemplified in the church. So they were united. They were doing the same things as they promoted peace and unity. And the stronger sacrificed his freedom for the sake of the weaker to build him up for his good because he knew that if this brother was in the presence of wine that it would be a struggle for him so they chose in their wisdom to pick places where that would not be an issue it wasn't a place where weaker christians they judged the stronger christians thinking i'm giving this part of my life to god why aren't you it wasn't a place where the stronger Christians looked down on the weaker Christians thinking, how, how immature can you be in your faith? They're trying to fix them theologically. It wasn't like that. There was no competition or differences on who was more spiritual or not because they all looked the same in the way they exercised they, their freedom. And though for us, this might show in the way that we welcome somebody new in our church where we're not so concerned with the non-essentials of the Christian life, but we're so concerned with their salvation. Do they know Jesus? It means that certain aspects of the worship service, it might not really be the way that you want to worship. But yet for the sake of your brother, you worship with all of your heart, mind, and soul. It means taking all the freedom that you have as a result of Jesus Christ, now thinking about how you can use that freedom not to judge or criticize, but to welcome and accept, encourage, and build up your fellow brother. You know, a few years ago, there was a commercial, and perhaps you guys seen it. And it was a commercial of these, these guys, a bunch of guys playing basketball in an indoor gym. And what was different about this scene was all these guys, they were in wheelchairs playing a very competitive game of basketball. They were hitting each other. People were falling. Uh, they were shoving each other. They were very well into this game. And it was friendly competition. And later on, this one guy, he makes this final game-winning shot, and this whole team cheers. And after all the cheering dies out, the, one of the members from the other team says, next week, next week, buddy, I'll get you next week. And after that, what happens is they all stand up. And at first you're thinking, wow, it's a miracle, right? Or they're frauds. But you see that not everyone stands up, but one person is still in his wheelchair because he's actually a paraplegic. And so the next scene is they're all leaving the gym together. And as they're leaving, there's a narrator, and he says, the choices we make reveal the true nature of our character. The choices we make reveal the true nature of our character. Now, at this point, I was almost in tears 
I was on an emotional high from this commercial. All to see, do you know what this commercial advertised? Guinness beer. <laughs> because after that narration, the next scene was the same brothers and guys at a local bar having fun, making jokes over a pint of drought uh, stout. Now, I was going back and forth if I should show this commercial or not, and I decided against it because I didn't want to trick you. I don't want anyone to be moved to tears all to find out that you cried over a beer commercial. But you could have replaced the final five seconds of that commercial and replaced it with Renewal Presbyterian Church. And it would have been a great commercial. Even the narration was right on target. It reflected Romans 14, right? Romans 15. It's we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. I'm sure it was easier for them to just play basketball, not to get these wheelchairs, right? To reserve a whole gym so that they could play with their friend. Verse 2, let each one of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. And as you do that, verse 5, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. Do you see what's going on? As you are set on building up your brother, the Lord strengthens you gives you encouragement and endurance as you are convinced I will use my freedom for the sake of this brother. And as a result, verse 6, that together with one voice you will glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And as I was reflecting over this passage and just praying for our church, and I was extremely thankful because I know during this past year, I know that many of you are living this out. And I see it. And the elders see it. Because I know many of you had to make sacrifices. Sacrifices over the non-essentials of where you worship. Making the sacrifice of adjusting to new elders and new pastors sacrificing your community group where it took you years to finally get used to them and now you're placed into a new group with new brothers and new sisters. Why? Because of this essential belief that I believe my church is to be on mission for those around me. And I see it. And we all see it. And we are encouraged. And I have no doubt in my mind, as we make decisions, as we continue to promote these essentials of the gospel, of who Christ is, over certain preferences, over certain inconveniences, the people around us, they will see. They will see the unity that you and I have because the world is looking. We saw that this past week. The world is looking at the church. And they're seeing how you are going to act. They're going to see if you are united. And the way that we respond is going to be a testimony. Because how are we going to be different from the rest of the world that is so divided over this and that? And can we show as a church that though we have differences in these non-essentials, when it comes to Christ and the gospel, it binds us. We are being watched. 
And the first thing that an, a non-Christian looks for in this church is how united you are. Are there different groups? Are there certain people that, that they're just more comfortable spending time? Or are they taking their freedom to reach out to others in the church? You know, I'm really encouraged by this former seminary professor by the name of Harvey Kahn. And he taught in the 70s. And he lived in Glenside, Pennsylvania, about 40 minutes north from here. And he and his wife were convicted to move into North Philly, where he could be closer to some of the people that he believed needed to hear this gospel message. And as he was living there, one of the uh, neighbors came up to them. She wasn't a believer. And she told him and his wife, you know, I just can't get how Christians with their high-fluting moral ideas can just go about and not do anything about the poor. And Professor Harvey Kahn and his wife, do you know what their response was? He said, you know what, yes, I agree with you. And he goes on, he says, it seems to me, for example, much of the anti-abortion movement is being led by many of these middle-class Americans who have nothing to lose personally in terms of abortion and also is supported by people who are not equally participating in the wider dimensions of the question that must be dealt with. He says, if you have an inner-city mother with six kids and many of them from different fathers, to deal with the abortion question with that mother, you have to deal with things such as poverty. You have to deal with things about how to reconstruct a family lifestyle. And you have to deal with how you're going to help that mother with kids. And he says, we don't see much of that going on because so many of us are narrowly looking with this question of abortion. And after that, he still says, and yes, we are against abortion. He says, evangelism which is the mission of the church, which is the reason why we made this decision to start Renewal Mainline. Evangelism is God's answers to the needs of those who feel left out, who feel like they were never in the in crowd. And he says that the unchurched are those who are searching for genuine community. They are the ones who are locked out. He writes, they feel like the churches have closed their doors against them. A divorcee perceives herself as not good enough. A poor immigrant janitor sees himself as overlooked, as the invisible American. And he says people like that, they're going to think of the church. They have their own little group. They have their own people. And the sobering reality is, just like the commercial that I mentioned, he writes, oftentimes for these people, the neighborhood bar becomes the best substitute in meeting their relational needs. That was written in the 70s, so perhaps I can add to that. Not only the neighborhood bar, but perhaps social media is where you can find relationship. Perhaps Netflix is the best substitute for emotional connection. Perhaps writing Facebook comments, they're the indicators whether we're loving our neighbor or not, based on how loving you sound in those two sentences that you write. You see, that Guinness commercial, it hit it right on the nail. It's not selling beer. It's selling a substitute version of Romans 14. We who are strong need to have an obligation for the weak, not to please ourselves, 
but to please our neighbor for his good and to build him up. Bruce Lawson says, the reason why people go to bars is because there you can find substitutes. It's an imitation, dispensing liquor instead of grace, escape rather than reality, but it is a permissive, accepting, and inclusive fellowship. It is unshockable. He says there you can tell people secrets and they won't tell anyone. The bar flourishes, not because people are alcoholics, but because God has put into the human heart the desire to know and to be known, to love and to be loved. And so many seek a counterfeit at the price of a few beers. See, I'm not here to talk about particular issues, but I'm here in light of Romans 14 and 15. How willingly are we to forsake our freedom for the sake of the weaker brother. How do we do this? How can we live like this? And I want to end with this application. Paul writes in chapter 15, verse 3, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. He writes in verse 8, For I tell you, that Christ became a servant to show God's truthfulness. The way that we can establish this, hate to say it, this kind of Guinness beer unity (laughs) is by having an honest view of ourselves. And what I mean by that is when Paul writes that Christ became a servant to us, what he did was Jesus saw us in the same way. When he looked down from heaven and he saw you and he saw me, he did not see this person in a wheelchair and this person not. He didn't say this person who listens to secular music and this person who doesn't. He saw all of us as wretched sinners in need of grace. And that's the first step we need to take. When you look at your brother next to you and your sister, How do you see them? Do you identify them with the things that they do or who they are in light of Jesus Christ, that they are sinners in need of grace? Because that's how Jesus sees you. No longer will this brother or this sister will be annoying because of the way she sneezes or holds his fork over the dinner table, but he'll be just like you a wretched sinner in need of amazing grace. Because in light of this relational tension and ethnic superiority we see in the world today and all the differences, we're all looking for the cure, aren't we? What's going to unite us? Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says, this isn't new. The world's been trying to figure this out all throughout history. And he says it's not enough just to appeal to to goodwill or human kindness or friendliness. In fact, it can be insulting if our external actions are kind, but deep down inside there's a belief that you're better than that person. He writes, it's not good enough just to appeal to kindness. It just does not work. It has never worked. It will never work unless you truly see yourself as the same as the brother next to you, as the same as the sister next to you, wretched sinner in need of grace. He says what does work is seeing 
that brother, no matter what ethnicity, no matter what kind of sins he struggles with, no matter what his political stance or his sexual orientation, the first way to identify everyone is they are sinners in need of Christ. And then after you do that, then see the magnificent reality of the redemption we have in Jesus Christ, he says. There is no other way. There is only one way, and it is Christ's way. And he tells us about the truth that we should see ourselves. He makes us face ourselves. Face to face with Jesus, I see my utter worthlessness, my wretchedness, my woe. When I look into the face of Christ, I have nothing to boast about. He makes me see the truth about myself. You will never get unity amongst men until they see the truth about themselves. Because he brings us down together in the dust and shows us that all of us need the same mercy, same grace, and the same love. That's the way of the cross. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he took that step where he didn't exercise his freedom to simply be in heaven and to enjoy all the glories that he had for all of eternity. The way that he exercised his freedom was he came to earth and he didn't simply go into a wheelchair he took on the flesh of legs to walk amongst us to know for the first time what it meant to be cold to be betrayed by his loved ones to endure physical pain and sickness and overall to experience the wrath of God that's how Christ exercised his freedom for you and it is only when you see that and you let that gospel truth take a hold of you that's when you can sit in that wheelchair because you've seen how christ loved you first that's how jesus christ exercised his freedom so that you and i can have genuine intimacy with god and in turn with one another And he says, I've known you for all eternity. Come to me. And when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you will enter in this kind of intimacy that Jesus had with his Father for all eternity. In John, the Gospel of John, Jesus prays to the Father, I pray that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Do you see how that unity is established? As we find our unity in Christ, as a result, we will be united by this gospel message. So I pray that as our church continues to establish ourselves, that we will be able to put Christ first, and that we will be united, not simply because we are kind to one another, but we sincerely believe that all of us are wretched sinners in need of grace, and that Christ has redeemed us because of the way he exercised his freedom for you and me. Let's pray.